0: Tom Woods Show, episode 2145. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here, The Tom Woods Show. Folks, I don't know about you, but I am running into a lot of progressives saying, look, police, fire, schools, these are all great examples of socialism. Well, let's focus on that school example. I've got a free ebook called Education Without the State. That makes a pretty darn good case for a stateless approach to education. Pick it up at Nostateeducation.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. We are doing a systematic episode, finally, on the subject of intellectual property. And we're doing it with our old friend Stefan Kinsella. Kinsella is the author of a book from many years ago called Against Intellectual Property. And we're gonna go through what his arguments are, and you make up your own minds. Kinsella has a very significant background in legal publishing as well. Most recently, International Investment, Political Risk, and Dispute Resolution, a Practitioner's Guide published by Oxford. You can get his full bio at his website, Stefan Kinsella, that's S-T-E-P-H-A-N, StephanKinsella.com. Stefan, welcome back.
1: Thank you, Tom. Glad to be
0: back. All right, I'm nearly 2,200 episodes in. And although you and I a long time ago did an episode on patents and whether patents satisfy the requirements for libertarian validity, that was forever ago. And even patents are only one piece of the puzzle. So I don't know why we haven't done a systematic coverage of this. And I know you have so many speeches and you've written so much on it, but doggone it, you're just gonna have to keep doing it as long as you live. That's just the rule. Well, Stefan Kancel.
1: With the right host this could be my number one uh, explanatory piece. So Oh, uh, all right.
0: All right, challenge accepted.
1: <laughs> all right. So let's start off with the
0: philosophical background here, spelling out the framework of property rights and of course related to that what constitutes aggression that you're judging various claims against. So in other words, most people I think probably don't have a systematic theory of property, property rights, property acquisition, scarcity. I I think most people just treat each issue on an ad hoc basis. But we libertarians pride ourselves in thinking things through systematically. So let's get the property rights backdrop here so then we can make sense of your arguments against IP.
1: Yeah, I think one problem is people approach this with the question, are ideas, or innovations or artistic creations, are they property? So like their question is, is something property? And that very way of framing it is based upon a confusion. So the question is not whether something is property, right? So we have to understand what do we mean by the word property? And I think what happened was the word property came to be associated with the object of ownership, even though it's more correct to say we human beings, we human actors have property rights in certain resources or we have ownership of certain resources. So I have a property right in a given thing, but over time we start saying that thing is my property. So then the question becomes, well, is that property or not? So like that's the mistake in the first place. So when you say, well, we have property rights in things, what does that mean? That means that we live in the world, we're human actors, we have scarce physical bodies and we need to use things to survive. And we have the potential of conflict with other people. So in society, we develop property rights, which are basically ways of allocating the rights to use these things that we could otherwise have conflict over. So that's just, that's all property rights are. Property rights specify which person owns this thing, which person has a property right in this thing. So the entire purpose of property rights is to help us reduce or even avoid conflict so that we can use these resources in a peaceful, productive way without conflict with each other. Now, the traditional private law, common law approach to this is we assign property rights with certain basic, natural, intuitive principles. One of which is, in the case of your body, everyone owns their own body, right? So we're opposed to slavery, basically. Everyone owns themselves, as you might say. But in the case of all these other things in the world that we need to use, these scarce resources, These are assigned basically first by first use because they're originally unowned, no one's using them, and the only way we can survive in the world is to start using these things. So that means the first person to use a resource has to have the right to do it. So the kind of core of property rights in external scarce resources is first use, or sometimes people call it homesteading or original appropriation. And then once you own this resource, you can assign it to someone else by contract, by gift, or by sale. So basically, contract, first use, and self-ownership are the core of how we determine who owns things. So that's what property rights means. So once you understand it in that way, it becomes clear that all these intellectual property rights are totally incompatible with that.
0: All right, now it becomes clear what the problem with intellectual property is. Because, and this was the thing, as soon as you explained it this way all those years ago, this was the thing where I thought, If I'm going to come up with a response to this, which I have never done because I don't think there is one, this is where the rubber meets the road. Because number one, ideas obviously aren't scarce. If I have an idea in my head, that doesn't mean that you can't simultaneously have it in your head. I'm not trespassing upon you or anything you own or your bodily integrity or anything by also entertaining that idea or by implementing that idea, by actually instantiating it Within some property that I own, that I did not steal from you, I didn't defraud you in any way. And so, therefore, this claim that I thought of something, so I own this idea, it's difficult to square with the property rights framework you just described. And the property rights framework you just described is, from what I can see, the libertarian property rights framework. What is the standard argument in favor of IP? Again, it doesn't necessarily have a philosophically well thought out property rights backdrop but what are the claims made i mean i think the claims are generally a utilitarian claim that well of course we have to protect people's property right in their ideas or their words or their videos or their t-shirt designs or whatever because otherwise how could people make a living doing this so it's all it's utilitarian or it's simply this sloppy idea that i can own an idea so Correct. let's start with that second one first
1: well yeah, so there's a confusion here. So, first of all, people don't often really understand what intellectual property is and they don't define what they're even talking about. So, you'll have half of the people that argue for IP. If you accuse them of being in favor of ownership of ideas, they will get upset and they'll say, I'm not in favor of the ownership of ideas. I'm only in favor of the instantiation of an idea. And then the other half will get upset with you if you oppose ownership of ideas because they think you're a communist. <laughs> so, they both fight each other because they don't have a coherent theory. I think what happened was a mistake crept into libertarian theory in the beginning because people started associating one of the consequences of libertarian property rights with the nature of them. And that is this. In an analog world before the modern information age, you know, by and large, when you have security of property rights in these material resources, then it gives you the ability to work with them, and to use your intellect to transform these things, to make products and innovations, and to, by and large, profit from that. So basically, you see that typically when you work hard and have a good idea and you have property rights, you tend to make a profit. So people tend to start saying, you have the right to the fruit of your labor, something like that. And then they say, well, if you work hard, you have the right to reap the rewards of your hard work. And then they say, well, if you work hard intellectually, you have the right to that too. So they start thinking that if you work at something, you deserve a profit or a return, which almost is Marxian, right? I mean, you really don't. I mean, entrepreneurs have to take the chance of loss. You know, If you work hard, you might suffer a loss. So there's no right to a return. There's no right to a profit. And the other thing is what I call libertarian creationism. There's a misunderstanding that one of the sources of property rights is creation. But this is a mistake. As I mentioned earlier, the primary source of property rights in external scarce resources is either you're the first one to start using it in the world. It already existed, and you're the first one to start using it. So you appropriate it or you homestead it, or you get it by contract from someone else. In neither case did you create anything. What creation has to do with is the economic side of things where you increase your wealth. So if you take a scarce resource, a raw material, a factor, an input, And you transform it with your labor or with your effort and with your intellect and your creativity, and you make a more valuable output product that you can sell for a higher price or that you can use to do something more useful. Like, let's say you use your, your skills and your labor and your intellect to take an unowned piece of wood and other materials, and you make a fishing net, and that fishing net now allows you to catch more fish. So what you've done is you've transformed a thing that you already owned, which was the raw materials, into a more valuable output product, which increases your wealth. So creation is a source of wealth, but it's not a source of ownership. And you can see this if you think of the worker on Henry Ford's assembly line making Model T cars. You know He is helping to create these cars, but he doesn't own them because he didn't own the input factors. Okay, So creation in that case is not sufficient for ownership. And if you just go into the wilderness and you find some unowned plot of land or unowned wood or something like that, or unowned food, and you start using it, you own it, but you didn't create it. So again, ownership is not necessary. So creation is neither necessary nor sufficient for ownership. So creation is a source of wealth. We have to keep that distinction in mind. So that's the mistake people make. So that's the primary fallacy, and that sort of came from John Locke and the way he had a metaphorical and overly lengthy way of explaining his homesteading principle, where he said that God gives us ownership of our bodies, and so everyone owns their body, and therefore you own yourself, and therefore you own your labor, and therefore you own your whatever you mix your labor with, because if it's an unowned thing in the wilderness and you mix your labor with it, well, you own that labor. And therefore, you have to own the thing you mix it with. So he has this kind of circuitous argument. So it makes people think that you own your labor. And actually, you know, Locke's argument, we call this the labor theory of property, which I think is a close cousin to the later labor theory of value of Adam Smith and Ricardo and then Karl Marx, which is you know basically Marxism. So we have to be careful of this overly metaphorical idea that labor is some kind of substance that emanates from our bodies that we own. It would be as silly to say that you own your labor is as silly as saying you own your actions. I mean, an action is what you do with your body and with the tools and means that you own, but it's not something that you own. You don't own your actions. That makes no sense. We only own scarce resources that there can be possible conflict over. So I think that's the source of one confusion. And we can go into the second one, which is more consequentialist and utilitarian, if you like.
0: Yeah, I do want to go into that in a minute because. That's, I think, probably the main objection people have. I think it's not as hard to argue with them and and explain that the theory just doesn't allow, the property rights theory we believe in just doesn't allow for IP. I think some people might be willing to accept that if they didn't simultaneously think, but without it, where would we be? In fact, I heard a talk you gave back at the Property and Freedom Society about seven years ago, where you called this the, who would pick the cotton objection? You know, Because when we had slavery, well, if we free the slaves, well, who will pick the cotton? That's the wrong question to ask. Look, well, who knows, but, but we have to get rid of slavery. We'll figure something out with the cotton. But since slavery is an outrageous injustice,
1: we can't even stop to think about the issue of the, the darn cotton. right? Well so, Or to take a simpler example, you know, people in more socialist countries, you, know, in the Soviet Union, during communism, or even in Europe now with socialized medicine, you know, if you propose having a free market, They might ask, how are my kids going to get education? Or who's going to make the toothpaste? The government makes the toothpaste. Now, how many brands of toothpaste are there going to be? What's the price going to be? What are the brands going to be called? I mean, we might not know the answers to that, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't abolish the government monopoly over toothpaste manufacturing and socialized medicine and have a free market and have freedom. Right. And not to mention, if we're going to argue along
0: the lines of, well, we need these various special privileges in order to get outcomes that we want, namely, more books and music and inventions or whatever people think they're going to get because of IP, then why not take that argument even farther and say, well, apparently we'd get even more innovations if we just flat out handed $10,000 to everybody who's working in these fields. Why don't we do that? Why not $50,000? Well, if that's what we're thinking.
1: Yeah, and that's actually one of the primary sort of consequentialist problems. Listen, I have no problem with consequentialism as one of the reasons that we get to libertarian principles the libertarian property rights principles I described earlier, that's not really an argument for them. It's more of an explanation of what our principles happen to be. You can get there from deontological arguments, natural rights arguments, consequentialist arguments, even utilitarian. But when people say something like, well, Stephen, if we get rid of copyright and patent, what's my incentive to write a novel or to write a play or to make a movie or to come up with a new pharmaceutical drug? But the implicit assumption in that question is that the goal of justice and the goal of law, and I guess the goal of libertarianism, is to maximize innovation and creativity. When did this become our goal? Our goal is to do justice and to protect property rights and to provide a level of propertarian playing field so that we can all live within that and make our own lives within that. It's not to maximize innovation. So I think the whole argument is a market failure argument. What these people that argue for patent and copyright law really believe, is that without these laws, there would be an underproduction of innovation. Most of them are not so simplistic as to say we would have no innovation, although some people simplistically do argue that. Most people say, well, we would have some, but we wouldn't have enough. It wouldn't be maximized. So what they think is the government can come in and fix this market failure by giving a temporary monopoly privilege grant that protects people from competition. So it gives them an additional financial incentive to engage in these activities in the first place because they can charge a higher price because they don't have any competition because it's illegal to compete with them and therefore you know restore the balance somehow, which of course is a complete pipe dream. But even some libertarians like Alex Tabarrok and others taking this logic more seriously have said, well, we should either augment or replace the patent system with a system of government taxpayer-funded prize awards where there's a government-appointed committee. And at the end of every year, they just hand out billions of dollars in awards to people for the innovations that they came up with. And of course, there's no stopping point to that. Why not make it $10 trillion a year if innovation is our main goal in life? But you know, I know that a common kind of objection to any
0: free market thing is, well, how would this work or how would that work? And half the time when people ask that, the thing is already being done somewhere in the world and we already know the answer, but they haven't bothered to look at it. But in other cases, yeah, we, we might not immediately know exactly how it would be done. But at the same time, it is, I think, a little bit of a cop-out to say, well, we'll just have to wait and see. We can still use our, you know, our reasoning
1: minds yeah. to come up with some kind of a, you know, a yes. groping toward an answer. I think you could have an answer as long as you first establish that, number one, the fundamental question is not How do we maximize innovation? That's not the question of justice and law. And number two, if the question is not a loaded question where they're basically demanding that you give them a guarantee, otherwise they're going to keep favoring this system. So it would be like saying, okay, you want to get rid of public schools and welfare. Can you give me some ideas of what it would look like in a private system? So that's a reasonable question, okay? But if they say, I'm only going to abolish the public school system and welfare if you can guarantee that just as many people will get a free education and free welfare support, then they're demanding a guarantee. They just want it done in another form. So as long as you kind of address those things. But of course we know, because like in the field of copyright, because of the internet, ever since the last 15, 20 years, piracy has become rampant. So it means it's extremely difficult for the copyright owners to enforce their copyright now. So basically, we live in a world already with Copyright has largely broken down, except for large institutional players. And we see what's happened. People have adopted different methods and techniques to monetize what they do, given the fact that it's easy for people to copy easily distributed works like podcasts or lectures or songs and music, even movies and books. So all we have to do is open our eyes and look around and see. In the patent field, there are many industries that are not patented because The producers find it to their advantage to use trade secrets instead. So in those industries, they don't actually use intellectual property law at all, and they work fine. In the software field, you have open source software. There's a whole, you know, probably the majority of most software innovation is done with the producers intentionally getting rid of copyright by use of these licenses that they use, these open source licenses. And then there are certain industries where there is no copyright or patent protection like perfumes and fashion design. And those are both flourishing industries that work just fine. Of course, there's lobbying all the time by the people inside those industries to get some kind of IP protection to protect themselves from competition. But the industry itself flourishes and is working just fine without IP. So you can find tons of industries where there is no intellectual property. And historically, of course, in the past, Until the modern era, there was no systematic patent and copyright law, and we had tons of (laughs) innovative, uh, scientific, and technical innovations and amazing works of art produced.
0: All right, here's what I want to know. Let's imagine, just to give people a really specific example, that you teach an online course. A lot of people have courses online. And so the course consists of a series of videos and some homework assignments and stuff like that. Now, I also have some online courses, but suppose I said, all right, here's my online course. It costs you $25. But part of the requirement is that you can't share the videos with anybody else. These are intended for you and for you only. And I'm not granting you the right to spread them around. Now, somebody could say, well, okay, fine, but I'm not stealing from you by downloading the video and uploading it to YouTube. So you really have no gripe with me. How does this analysis apply to a case like that?
1: Well, you certainly could have a contract with your customers, which limits the rights that they have as to how they can use the content that they're basically purchasing from you. And if you want to put some teeth into it, you could add some damages clauses. You could say, look, if you use this in a certain way, then you owe me lots of money. Now, right now with the copyright system those damages are insane there are statutory damages of $75,000 per infringing use and all this kind of stuff things people probably would never agree to you know if i want to buy a $5 book from amazon if they say listen you can only use this for certain uses you can't copy it and if you do copy it you have to pay x dollars in damages you know if it's $100 i might agree to that if it's a million dollars i'm probably not going to agree so it depends on what you agree to the other thing is, of course, it's difficult to police that because the nature of information is that once it gets out, it gets out. But again, that's the danger we face even with IP law. Like, even if you have copyright law, people can still violate it and pirate it and things like that. So, I do think that there are probably natural limits to what you can do with a contractual scheme like that. Although you can do it and you can use paywalls. I do think that, you know, most of the time, if you Or able, lucky enough to get a customer to pay you money for something that they can easily pirate for free, especially legally in a copyright-free world. If you're lucky to get them to pay it, you're going to be reluctant to try to get them to agree to pay a steep damages thing for using the information that they're buying. Now you could say, listen, don't copy this, keep it secret for a while, and that can work. But I think people have to be creative and use paywall systems, freemium models, things like that. And things that people don't try to do as much given when they can rely upon copyright. Although nowadays, because of piracy, they're experimenting with these models.
0: Well, you know, in the same way that intellectual property is said to give a shot in the arm to innovation, and we'll get to that in a minute, in the same way, the lack of intellectual property may inadvertently and not by design give a shot in the arm to creativity among content creators to figure out ways to enhance experiences for people so that. Yeah, they could still pirate something, but they're still missing 90% of the experience because now I've realized that just producing this or that ebook isn't going to allow me to retire in Hawaii. So I have to give them experiences like I'll sit down with them and answer questions for two hours, or I'll get some expert on some topic to come take their questions. And that's something you can't copy because you have to be present there to ask the question. And to be present... You got to have a username and password to get in. So there are a variety of ways. In fact, with the streaming services really, really cutting into traditional musicians' revenue, what you see an awful lot these days is when a new album release comes out, certainly at least in the genre that I follow, they will have a special collector's edition box set, and they have all these different enticements to get you to buy the physical copy given how alluring it is simply to stream it on some service. So again, this has required them to serve the consumer even better. There's no natural law that says all musicians need to be multi-millionaires sailing around in a yacht. That's not a fixed aspect of the universe. And if they want to be that, then they're going to have to come up with something new for the listener's experience in order to earn
1: that. Well, not only that, I mean, even under a strict copyright regime, most artists don't make a lot of money anyway. So it's not like they're all millionaires just because of that copyright. That is true. Well, yeah, that's right. And it's also true that you know once you have a copyright or patent monopoly, it allows you to rest upon your laurels and not innovate as much and be lazier and just let the royalties come in. So yeah, your incentive to add value and to keep innovating is reduced. And not only that, there are many art forms that are heavily distorted and suppressed because of copyright, like sampling and you know, people just making a movie influenced by another one or even making a sequel. I mean, we might have had Atlas Shrugged made earlier (laughs) than it was. and made better if people had been free to do that. You know, there might have been a Lord of the Rings movie made or there might have been Star Wars sequels that are unauthorized that are better than the ones that were made, but people can't make them. So there's lots of distortions of culture because of copyright. And in terms of patents, I would argue that it's pretty clear that innovation is impeded overall by the patent system because when you get a patent on an innovation that's a successful product, you have a reduced incentive to keep innovating and improving your product because you don't need to because you can just for 17 years, you have a monopoly on this thing. And at the same time, your competitors have a reduced incentive to innovate in that field because if they come up with a slight improvement or whatever... On your product they can't sell it because you have a patent that would block them so it reduces innovation by both the original creator and by competitors so if you get rid of copyright you would have more artistic expression people experimenting with all kinds of things that they're not permitted to now and if you get rid of patents you would have more innovation by the original creators and by would-be competitors
0: still there will be some people who will say that there are some areas let's say medical innovation where the investment required is so overwhelmingly great that if you do have some breakthrough and then somebody comes along, does exactly what you're doing and sells it for three cents a dose, then there's no reason you would do it. And we would be, yes, you'd have your preferred property rights arrangement upheld, but that's cold comfort to all these people who don't get life-saving drugs.
1: So so the way to look at that is, well, first of all, anyone who's really interested in that case, because the pharmaceutical case is usually held up as the hardest case to argue against patents for. in my view, it's the other way around. I think that patents impede innovation even in pharmaceuticals, and because they're life-saving things, patents do the most damage in pharmaceuticals. But the way to look at it, number one, if anyone's really interested, they should look at chapter nine, I believe it is, of Boldrin Levine's book, Against Intellectual Monopoly, which is online at againstmonopoly.org. And they just go through the whole pharmaceutical case and they explode all these assumptions about the way the pharmaceutical industry works. But the fundamental thing to keep in mind is this. The cost of developing a new pharmaceutical is very high, primarily because of the FDA, which is another system imposed on us by the federal government. And furthermore, that cost is mostly on the clinical trial phase. It's not on the innovation phase. The innovation is fairly cheap and fairly quick nowadays, like coming up with the new formula. It's just then you have to do clinical trials to test it, and you have to satisfy the FDA. And that takes time, and it takes lots of money and lots of lawyers. And furthermore, by the time you're done, you had to disclose to the FDA and publicly all your formulas and your processes so that by the time you're finally ready to get selling this product, several years down the road, after you got all your approvals done, all your would-be competitors, all the generics, they already know how to do it because you were forced to, to lower your panties, basically, and show the world you know, all the goods. Okay, so without the FDA, you could keep your stuff secret for a longer time. It would be shorter. It wouldn't be as expensive. So you wouldn't have all these mammoth costs to have to recoup by a monopoly price that you're given because of the patent system, so in short, instead of saying the government is going to impose a huge regulatory cost in the terms of the FDA and then make up to people for it, make up to the drug manufacturers for it by giving them another government grant of a monopoly with the patent system, why not get rid of both? Well,
0: true, of course, that is ultimately the the thing all right so but surely, there must be other things where there's a massive capital outlay necessary and it's done with the expectation of reaping profits later and that intellectual property helps them to reap these profits. I mean, again, I understand, I'm just raising this as devil's advocate. I personally resisted your argument for a long time because I just thought, yeah, I get, I understand where you're coming from, but I feel like the consequentialist
1: argument is just so strong here that it's hard to discard it. Well, there's no doubt that, Look, the reason that we libertarians oppose a given policy, a given law, is because it has an effect. Like, if there was an income tax, but they weren't able to collect it, I wouldn't complain about it. (laughs) If there was a drug war that was never enforced, I wouldn't complain about it. If it was all dead letters. So the only reason that we oppose laws is because they have an effect. And the reason we oppose the patent and the copyright system is because it has an effect, which means it is distorting the innovative landscape and culture right now which means if you get rid of it, things will change. They'll go back to a more, a less distorted playing field, which means some people will gain and some will lose. Disney and Hollywood and the music industry will lose and maybe some pharmaceutical companies will lose, but everyone else will gain. And the net balance is something we can't really compute because value is you know, not measurable. But we have no reason to believe that the government intervention is maximizing or increasing welfare. Now, I happen to believe that, in the case of pharmaceuticals, we would see more innovation, at least in most fields. There could be one or two things that that we don't see, But again, the argument you gave earlier could be brought up. You could say, well, right now, let's say the argument of the patent people is correct, and that without the patent system, you have an underproduction of drugs, new drugs, okay? So instead of having x, you have one half x. OK? So with the patent system, let's say we have x. Well, but we don't have 1.5x. So maybe the patent monopoly is not enough to incentivize this next breakthrough drug that we could have if we just had a little bit more incentive you know, to the manufacturers. So let's have a taxpayer-funded prize award on top of that. Like there is no stopping point to this idea that the role of the government is to tweak the law and to violate property rights to increase the amount of innovation that the government thinks that we're underproducing right now. And
0: of course, since there is no knowable, optimal amount of innovation, we're intervening necessarily arbitrarily. We can't know that there needs to be 3% more innovation. Well, then there needs to be 3% less of what else? What is the other thing that you have somehow decided is not as urgently necessary as you think this particular innovation is? Well, maybe to some other people, that other thing is much more important. Sometimes I've given the example of, imagine trying to invent something like an iPod you was know, just already kind of out of date. But just to try to imagine, inventing the iPod in the 19th century, all the technological work you would need to do and all the research you'd need to do to come up with developing an iPod, it would probably consume all the resources of society to do it at the stage that Correct. the level of wealth was at, scientific knowledge was at. So maybe you could have had a iPod in the 19th century if we had had massive subsidy programs, but you would have lost out on every single
1: other thing that people value. Yeah, we can have a Manhattan Project to make an iPod in 1940 or something. Right. (laughs) Well, you know, and that gets it also. The nature of innovation is always cumulative. It is never like some light bulb moment where someone does it all on their own. Inventions tend to come when their time has come. You know, so the iPod could not have actually come along in in 1900 because you didn't have the surrounding technology that permitted it. But when the technology gets to that point, it's going to come. Like the light bulb was going to come, the automobile was going to come, airplanes were going to come at a certain point. And in fact, in most of these cases where people file these patents and get these patents, there were many competing inventors who were doing the same thing at the same time. You know, there's a reason the calculus was invented by Leibniz and Newton at the same time, and you know, marginal utility was discovered by three economists at the same, roughly the same time. Ideas come where their time has come. You had electric current and batteries and transistors and things like that. So if you give someone a monopoly just because they happen to come up with it first, well, first of all, they're not always even first. You know, there might be someone else who came up with it first, but they just haven't gone to the patent office yet. So the whole thing is arbitrary, and it just gives someone a, a monopoly and then allows them to sit on their laurels. In that chapter I mentioned earlier in the Bolger and Levine book on pharmaceuticals, they go into the history of like the 20th century. And Switzerland and Italy did not have patents on pharmaceuticals for like a good 50-year period when they were the dominant manufacturers' of pharmaceuticals in the world. And they're still major players even today. So they were among the most dominant producers of pharmaceuticals, even without patent protection.
0: Hey folks, quick message from Woods here. There are so many things broken in America today, we've almost forgotten how bad the healthcare system is. The government and big insurance companies who have gotten artificial stimulus from the government stand between you and quality care. It's all been downhill ever since your healthcare stopped being something between you and your doctor. Well, CrowdHealth's disruptive technology puts your healthcare decisions back in your hands, saving you money and cutting out the middlemen. It's not insurance, it's what insurance should be. There are no deductibles, networks, complicated exclusions, or co-pays. You can see any doctor you want. All you do is pay the first $500 and submit any bills from there. The Crowd Health community takes care of the rest. So how does it work? You pay one low monthly total to fund your account. That's less than $200 a month for most people. 100% of your monthly contribution directly funds and reduces the healthcare costs of the community. And unlike insurance, You're not limited by doctor networks. CrowdHealth helps members shop for great care at a fair price, makes payments to doctors and members as quickly as possible, and negotiates on the community's behalf when unexpected bills arise. And it totally reverses the vicious incentives that got the healthcare system into this mess in the first place. Well, stop supporting the broken health insurance system with your hard-earned dollars. Join CrowdHealth today to experience freedom from health insurance. Right now, you can get your first six months for just $99 per month, when you sign up at joincrowdhealth.com/woods, that's almost 50% off the normal price and a lot less than a high deductible health care plan. That's joincrowdhealth.com/woods. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for health care. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, here's what I have in mind. This is what i wanted to ask you for a while. There are a lot of things that strictly speaking you have a right to do that are nevertheless really obnoxious to do. For instance, I can be late all the time to social events with my friends. And there's no law against that. They can't put me in jail for that, but that's really, really inconsiderate. And it's annoying, but I have the right to do it. So here's what I want to know. Suppose I see somebody has a t-shirt design that's funny and clever and expresses some belief that I have really effectively. And then three days later, they see me selling that exact t-shirt with that exact design. Does the original creator have any reason to be annoyed? Now, not that he would go and try to put me in jail. Because again, maybe this is a case of I have the right to do it.
1: That's right. kind of a jerk thing to do. Do you think that's a jerk thing to do? I think that's a question of you know ethics and customs and things like that. I don't claim to be an expert on that, but my personal opinion is there's like literally zero, nothing whatsoever wrong with doing that. The only exception I would make is that there does tend to be a social an ethical prohibition on two things, which I agree with. Number one is plagiarism. Plagiarism means presenting an original work of someone else as your own. So you're basically just dishonestly claiming attribution of something. So it's just a case of you're just lying, and that's just wrong. And related to that is the idea of attribution itself. We do tend to give people credit for innovating certain things not always a patentable or copyrightable innovation or artistic creation, but anything that's notable in society. So there still would be, and there always has been, you know, we know who came up with different inventions in the past, even before the patent system, because history records who did it and people kept track of that. So I think basically it's like writing a paper and having enough footnotes, like footnoting your sources, giving credit to people. So I think that you could argue that's an ethical thing. But merely copying what someone else has done and competing with them and learning from them, I don't see anything wrong with that whatsoever, as long as you're not dishonestly claiming that you came up with it. And making a t-shirt, I don't see any obligation to drop a footnote saying, I got this from someone else. I think if someone makes a t-shirt or sells a product and they put it out into the world, they are taking the risk that other people are going to learn from that, copy it, and emulate it. And if they don't want to do that, they should keep it to themselves.
0: Yeah, I hear that. I still feel like I, I wouldn't do that. I would feel like a, a putz if I did that.
1: I just wouldn't. But okay, you and I might disagree on that. I would say that there is something about not just having integrity, but in wanting to make your own thing. You know, If I wanted to compete with a McDonald's fast food hamburger chain, even if I was able to have another McDonald's, which I think you wouldn't be able to, by the way, because of fraud law, but let's say you could do that you know, you're gonna to want to put your name on it. I'm gonna to wanna to call it Burger King or Kinsella's burgers. Everyone wants to put their own name on things. If you want to have a breakout product or reputation, you're gonna to want to brand it, you know, yourself and make a change. So I think it's a little sleazy to just be a complete knockoff guy, but it just means you're low rent. I don't think you're violating anyone's rights or doing anything unethical to the to the original creator.
0: Now, sometimes we get critics of the market economy, they'll come up with wild scenarios of what would happen. If the state didn't do X, they would have wild scenarios of what would be likely to happen that you know would never occur. Sometimes we can imagine this when we think about areas of the economy that are private, but what if, you know, we know Rothbard's case about what if the state had provided them for a while, like shoes, and then suddenly you say, now the free market's going to supply shoes. People would say, oh my goodness, think of the lack of coordination. We'd have a lot of right, right foot shoes and not enough left foot shoes. And you stop and think, well, why would we? What private shoe producer would think that would be in his interest to do? Why would you think of that? You know, or if the state had been making batteries and then suddenly the private sector is gonna make batteries. Oh, well, they'll make batteries that don't work in all products or whatever. But why would they? Nobody wants that. So why would they do it? But nevertheless, there are some types of scenarios with IP that I think are wildly implausible, but that probably still need to be answered. So for instance, Let's take a, an example that would hit pretty close to home for me. Suppose somebody released one of my books under my name, so they're not claiming they wrote it. They released my book with a much nicer cover. The content's entirely the same, or maybe the content's altered just enough to make me look bad, where it's got me saying outrageous things that I would never say. Is that the world Stefan Kinsella wants? <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh.
1: Well, I do think people should have that right, yes, because number one is libertarians were not in favor of defamation law either. So what he's doing arguably is lying. he's lying to people, which lying is not a crime. He's being dishonest, and he's defaming you, and defamation should not be a crime either, and he's violating your copyright, but that shouldn't be a law either. I don't think it's a real problem because, listen, that could happen right now. With books that are out of copyright, but it never happens. So people always say, "Well, how would you like it? Can sell if I take one of your books and I slap my name on it and I make a million dollars?" And I'm like, "Please do it. Show me how to do that." I mean, I'd like, if it was that easy, I mean, come on. But so you don't see people selling bootleg copies of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, you know, or Moby Dick, or the Bible with their names on it. I mean, you're totally free to do that right now. Or even to take your name off of it. And so make a bootleg copy. What, why would I buy your copy of the Bible when I can go get the authorized copy for $7 from Amazon and know that it's not been adulterated by some hack? I mean, we just don't see that happening now. So it's just, it's not a realistic danger we even have to worry about. Okay, but as I said, <laughs>
0: nevertheless, sometimes you have to talk about things like this.
1: So if it, ha- if it happened, then you, know, you would simply be selling your authorized copy and if anyone accuses you of having said this on page twelve, you can say, "Well, you're just factually wrong. That's not my book. Look at my book on my website, look on page twelve, and you'll see I didn't say that. You're reading an adulterated copy. I mean, you know, with defamation, which I view defamation as a type of intellectual property law, too, although it's not typically called that, because it's a reputation right similar to trademark law. But, You could argue that the existence of defamation law makes people believe false claims because if someone makes a false accusation of you right now, then everyone knows that you have the right to sue them for defamation. And if you don't sue them for defamation, they assume, well, it must have been true. But if there was no defamation law and you didn't have the right to sue someone for defaming you, then people would be more skeptical of claims because they would understand that people are free to make false claims. So likewise, I think if they knew that people were running around making these adulterated copies of people's books because they had the perfectly legal right to, they wouldn't be so willing to trust it without going to the original source and verifying it. Well, how about trademark though?
0: It does seem like trademark can be helpful to the consumer because he knows if I see the Howard Johnson sign and it's the usual logo, I know that I can expect a certain level of quality and a certain level of predictability when I go there. And the same could be true for restaurant chains or whatever. And again, this would be another thing that people could imagine that you spend years and years building up your brand loyalty and the quality of your product. And then I just trespass on that by grabbing your logo and name and just putting the sign up myself. How do we get around that? Because that does seem like something you could imagine as being useful information for the consumer.
1: Yeah, and I usually focus upon patent and copyright because they're very similar and they both do the most damage. Trademark is a little bit subtly different and people don't quite understand it. And they basically say, well, we're against fraud, right? So what they're assuming is that it helps protect the consumer from fraud. And the problem with that argument is they don't quite understand how trademark works. First of all, if all trademark did was stop fraud, then what does it add to existing fraud law? In other words, we already have contract and fraud law. So why doesn't that suffice, right? Which I think it would suffice, by the way, in a free market with no trademark law. I think that if you had a hotel chain that held itself out as being Howard Johnson's or whatever, and it's just a fake one that's not authorized by the original corporation, then a customer basically is being deceived when they pay their, you know, pay for their room. And they would have a fraud claim or a breach of contract claim. And that hotel would soon go out of business because they'd be just of barrage with lawsuits all the time. So it would be in your interest to actually get a license from Howard Johnson so that you're not defrauding the customer or to come up with your own name, which is what would happen. What trademark law does is it says that someone holds a trademark and they can stop someone from using that mark if there's a likelihood of consumer confusion. Okay, so first of all, there's three problems with that. The standard is consumer confusion, which is not the same as fraud. And number two, there's a likelihood. It doesn't mean the particular person is actually confused. It just means that people in general are, but if someone happens to not be confused, there's still a trademark infringement. And number three, the cause of action is given to the trademark owner, not to the customer that was confused or defrauded. So trademark law basically is like defamation law and it gives a reputation right to someone. But the problem with the reputation right, like the problem with defamation law, is that your reputation is what other people believe about you. And everyone has the right to believe whatever they want, even if they base their view of you upon false information that other people have spread. So you can't have a right to what other people think about you. So I think the problem with trademark is that it gives the cause of action to the wrong person. So a good example of this is if someone buys a fake Chanel purse for $10 when they're usually $1,000, that customer is not being defrauded because they very well know they're buying a fake Chanel purse. So there's no consumer confusion or fraud there whatsoever. And yet Chanel can get a court order to have all these knockoff purses destroyed, even though no one's rights are being violated. All right, for the sake of completeness, because I I want this to be the
0: intellectual property episode so I can tell everybody it's been done, I refer them to it, and it's the one-stop shop for everything. And obviously for all these things, you can go into more detail. And in fact, let me pause for a minute. I mentioned at the very beginning when I was introducing you about your short book on this subject, but haven't you been working on something more extensive since then? I mean, are you at work on anything related to this topic right now?
1: Well, I plan to write something called Copy This Book, which will be like a totally restatement of it with all the new arguments I've come up with in the last 20 years. And I did do a six-week Mises Academy course about eight, nine years ago on this whole topic. So I go into exhaustive detail in a six-week Mises Academy course, which is free online. So you could refer them to that.
0: Okay, okay. All right, I was just wondering. All right, but let's say a little something about, if we could, so-called trade secrets. Okay. So what's a technical definition of trade yep. secrets? What's the standard argument for why they're necessary, which almost seems unnecessary to state because I think we all kind of get it. But then um, what's the problem with them from this property rights framework?
1: okay. So let's back up. and Why are we talking about all these types of laws, like copyright, patent, trademark, trade secret, and what I call defamation? And there's other types of intellectual property too, like boathole designs and semiconductor mask work protection and database rights in some countries and what's called moral rights in some countries, which means your right to be attributed the right way and to have your work not defaced. So why do we call them intellectual property? What basically happened was the trademark law and trade secret law, were independent bodies of law that developed more or less on the common law, even though I disagree with aspects of trademark laws, they developed on the common law. Patent and copyright were completely creatures of statute. That's why they're in the Constitution in the US. They were both considered to be monopoly privilege grants and derogations of the free market. And the argument is that, well, we need to have a little bit of, you know, tampering of the free market to encourage innovation and creativity. But in the 1800s, A lot of free market economists, you know, with the Industrial Revolution and the boom in America and and in Europe, they started saying, why do we have these crazy government privilege grants? We should abolish patent and copyright. But of course, by then, entrenched interests had built up industries, you know, that were reliant upon these things. And they fought back by saying, well, it's not a government grant of monopoly privilege. It's not a special privilege grant. It's just another property right. And then the critic says, what do you mean it's a property right? It's an intangible, immaterial thing. It doesn't last forever. And then the response was, well, it's a special type of property right. It's an uh, intellectual property right. So basically, the term intellectual property is a propaganda term that the defenders of these laws came up with. And they put all of them under the same umbrella, even though they're not all the same, although they share things in common. So the fundamental arguments applies mainly to the two most harmful patent and copyright, which you have discussed. Trademark, I've explained what's wrong with trademark. I would get rid of trademark and rely upon contract and fraud only, and that would suffice. Now, trade secret simply, are you still on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Trade secret is basically a law that says this. It's almost like, like the original common law copyright idea, which was the right to have an unpublished manuscript, have someone who stole it from you not publish it. So trade secret law doesn't say you have the right to keep things secret. All you need is property rights for that. You know, if you have a secret in your head, you don't have to tell anyone. Or if you have a manufacturing facility, you don't have to spread to the world your proprietary techniques. You know, you can keep it secret. Trade secret law does not permit you to do that. You already have the right to do that. What trade secret law says is that if you have some proprietary technique that you're using commercially that gives you an advantage over your competitors, and you're taking reasonable steps and due diligence to keep it secret... Then if it starts to leak, you can go to a court and get a court injunction against the person that it leaked to to tell them they can't spread it further. So that's what trade secret law does. So the classic example is if you have some employees and they know of your secrets and you bound them all by employment agreements not to reveal this information even after they quit, but one of them quits and is hired by a competitor or goes into his own business and he starts using that information and threatens to reveal it to the world You can go to court and get an order to keep him from using it, but even you can get an order to keep other people from using it. So my problem with trade secret law is that part, is using a court order against the third party because they don't have a contract. So I have no problem with saying that an employee or a former employee who leaks a secret they have a contract not to do is violating your rights. You have a cause of action. You can sue them for breach of contract, okay? And that would be sufficient to keep them from doing it in most cases. But if they happen to leak the information, and let's say they put it on the internet. Now, everyone in the world has this knowledge. Well, actually, trade secret law wouldn't work there because once the trade secret is lost, it's lost. But as long as there's a chance of it staying secret, you can get a court order against... Now, this was used, by the way, in that you might remember when the Apple iPhone 4, maybe, was being prototyped and tested by their field engineers. One of these guys, Apple guys, left his iPhone 4 prototype on a bar stool in a bar in San Francisco or something. And some other guy found it. Some random stranger found it and took it to his house and took some photos of it and you know, said, hey, I got an iPhone 4. I don't know how the hell this happened. All of a sudden, he got knocks on his door from the federal police with the California cops. They busted in his house and they took it back from him. And he was under an order not to reveal the details he had learned which I think is ridiculous. I do think Apple had the right to get their phone back because they still own that phone. But knowledge he had gained from the carelessness of Apple, they don't own that knowledge and they should not have been able to use State Force to stop him. A related example, by the way, this is copyright, but a related example is back in when Harry Potter, number, I don't know, four or five, one of those books was about to be released on a certain date, the copies of the book were shipped to bookstores you know, a week ahead of time. And a bookstore in Canada accidentally sold about a dozen copies like a week or two before the publication date. And when the publisher found out, they went to a court in Canada, and the court ordered these 12 people that had bought the book not to read it and not to tell anyone what they'd read already. I mean, it's just crazy what you can do with IP law. It's the control of information. Let me go back, if you don't mind,
0: to patents for a minute, because... You've talked a little bit about so-called patent trolls and the problems with patent trolls, but then you've also talked about, you've also said that there are plenty of pro-IP people who, you know, gnash their teeth over patent trolls and they say that this is all terrible, but that you say the patent troll thing is almost a distraction because the whole system is itself the problem. And you, I've heard you go through and describe at length the costs imposed by the patent system. Now, you touched on that a little bit here, but I wonder if you could go into a little bit more depth on it. First of all, with the patent troll thing, because I think most people would admit that, that that can be a problem with the system. But then let's
1: get a little bit deeper into the problems with the system. Yeah, well, I think this is a case where most people have it like totally backwards. So, most people assume that the original idea behind the IP system, let's say just – let's stay with the patent system for a second – is a good idea, but it's been corrupted. And it's, they say, they'll say things like the patent system is broken or it's strayed from its original purpose. But the assumption there is that the core idea is a good one, right? So they'll say something like don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's fix the system. Let's improve it. But what they're talking about is what they think of as abuse. Now, what they don't understand is all these cases of abuse are the natural outcome of the system, and the cases of abuse are not even the worst part of it. They're like the best part almost. So, for example, they'll say we need to improve the quality of U.S. patents because our patent office examiners are half-assed and they don't do a good job, and they, they let a lot of things get patents on that shouldn't be patented because they're not truly innovative. Well, the problem with that argument is that those patents are the least harmful ones because if you have a patent that should not have been granted… You're going to be reluctant to try to sue someone based upon it because if they fight you back in court, they're going to win. So the only patents people tend to assert are the ones that are strong, the ones that should have been granted. So that's the real problem, right? It's the patents that should have been granted. And by the same token, people say, well, I think it's wrong that people that don't even make anything, which are patent trolls, the technical term for patent trolls is NPE, non-practicing entity, meaning you get a patent on a process or or a design, and you don't actually have a, you don't manufacture it. Like the guy that invented the intermittent windshield wiper idea, he's just some guy, I think Jerome Limelson, who had 500 patents. He just filed a patent on it. And then he went around collecting royalties from all the car companies, right? Something like that. So he wasn't even making it. He's just a troll. The idea of troll is, you know, the guy sits under the bridge and he charges you a toll to pass on the bridge. So the thing there is a patent troll all they do is they exert a small tax upon a given industry it can't be too much of a tax because if they kill the industry then they don't get any kind of royalties anymore and if they charge too much they're going to get someone's going to fight back and invalidate their patent maybe so they just take a little taste you know so they're a drag but they're just a small part of the patent problem the real patent problem is not from bad patents it's from good patents and it's not from patent trolls it's from people that are competitors people that are practicing entities that make the product that's covered by their patent because they are going to seek not only damages from competitors who are making that, they're going to seek an injunction from the court ordering you not to make it, like to shut their, they don't want their competitors to keep making it and just pay them some money. They're going to shut them down. So the fundamental problem is the essence of the system itself. You know, it's that old quote, the thing itself is the abuse. (laughs) It's, it's It's not that we have to fight patent abuse and the broken aspect of it. Inherently it's an evil system. When people say, oh, there's an outrageous patent granted on, you know, a centrifugal machine to help deliver babies or something silly like that. It's like, you know, every patent is outrageous because you're giving someone the right over an idea. Now, in the very beginning, you asked me a question about one of the arguments people use, and it's this creation idea. The fundamental mistake people make is this. When you own a resource, you only own that particular instance of that resource. You don't own its characteristics or its features. So for example, if you own a red car, okay, a red car that weighs 3,000 pounds and is 10 years old, you don't own its age or its color or its weight or the way it's shaped. You own that car and that car happens to have these characteristics or features or you could call them its properties. And you see why the word property starts turning into a metonymy or a stand-in for the thing itself. Okay. But the thing is, people start thinking, well, I own the characteristics of the thing I own. But as Roger Long points out, that means you're owning a universal. So it would be like if you owned a red car and now you own red because you own the red in the car. So that means you own every other red object in the universe or every other red car, which would be ridiculous because someone else already owns those cars. So by owning a universal, it basically undermines property rights and scarce things in the world, all property rights. This is why there's always a conflict between intellectual property and property rights and scarce resources. It's not just like another property right, which the IP advocates want to paint it as. Just like if we have positive rights, they don't add on to the negative rights that we have. They take away from them. Like if you grant someone a welfare right, that means they have a right to get income from everyone else. So that takes away from their property rights because they have to pay taxes to you, right? Nothing is for free. It's the same thing with like monetary inflation. You can't just print money and give it to the poor. Because that inflates the money supply and debases the purchasing power of everyone's money. Nothing comes for free. And if you grant IP rights, you necessarily subtract away from and take away from property rights and real things. Now, when it comes to information, this is where an understanding of Mises and Praxeology comes in handy because Mises views humans as acting, which means we are human actors guided by our intellect and our will with a view towards the future and things that we want to change. And we have an understanding of the way cause and effect works in the world and what scarce means. We can use these tools, these scarce resources to achieve our ends. So every time we act, we employ a scarce resource that is our body plus other tools in the world. And that action is always guided by knowledge. So the two fundamental ingredients of successful human action is the availability of scarce resources and the availability of knowledge to guide our action. But property rights only apply to the scarce resources, not to the knowledge, because the knowledge can be copied and shared and emulated and learned and competed over. And if you think about what knowledge is, it's a characteristic or it's a feature of a thing that's already owned, just like the color red or the weight of an object, because information is not an independently existing thing that can exist in the world by itself, which is why you can't own it. It's not a scarce resource. It's always just the arrangement or the impatterning of an underlying scarce substrate or carrier or resource. So a book is the way you know a novel is the way ink is arranged on the pages of a book, or the way electrons or atoms are arranged in a computer's memory, right? And design for a machine is just the way you would arrange certain physical material parts to achieve some useful result. So it's always the way things are arranged. And the reason you can't own these ideas and this information is because it would be like owning an attribute or a universal. It would give you ownership of everyone's property, which is fundamentally the problem with intellectual property is that it's what I call a negative servitude. Intellectual property is not really the ownership of information because it's impossible to own information. It's not just that it's immoral, it's impossible because ownership is always the legal right to use physical force to retain control over a certain thing. And physical forces can only be used against physical material things. So whenever you grant someone the right to copyright or patent, it's really a disguised way of granting you a property right in someone else's scarce resource because that's what ownership of universals does. So for example, if I own a patent on an iPhone, I basically own the raw materials of all my competitors because I can keep them from using them in a certain way. And if I own a copyright in a book, that gives me a partial property right in the paper and ink of everyone on the earth because I can keep them from using their paper and ink to print to arrange them in a certain way. So that's the fundamental problem with patent and copyright, and it it's the disguised grant of a negative servitude or a negative easement over other people's scarce resources. And the problem with that is that it's not consented to. There's nothing wrong with negative easements as long as they're contractually agreed to. That's what homeowners associations are. That's what they're based upon. But in those cases, the owners freely grant these negative easements to other people. But in the case of patent and copyright, the government grants it for the owner without their consent.
0: Wow. I think this is a pretty thorough episode. But of course, I think still, there'll be people with the, in the back of their minds have objections. But I want you to think about the logic of what's being described here. Then secondarily, what would society look like in the absence of intellectual property. But first, see, is there anything wrong with the theory? Start there. And then if you're convinced that the theory is right, and that there are no errors involved, there's no injustice involved, well, then the question becomes, all right, well, then what is society going to look like at such time as we decide that this is not a good system? Now, it seems like there are so many vested interests But you know what? You could say that about any government program, couldn't you? There's so many vested interests in it that it's almost unimaginable that it could ever be gotten rid of. Is there any kind of change, or I hate to use the awful word, reform, that would be somewhere between the present system and abolition that you would think is at least moving in the right direction?
1: I think the problem is that there are three industries in the U.S. Hollywood for movies, the music industry for copyright, music, and then for patents, the pharmaceutical industry. Those three industries have such a tight grip on U.S. policy. They basically use, they weaponize the U.S. government and the American state's hegemonic power in the world to export our laws to other countries where it's not in their interest at all. It's not in America's interest either, but it is in the interest of those three industries. So the entire world's IP systems have been bent in the U.S. direction for the benefit of these three industries. And you know they're not going to give up. Without a huge fight, I do think that the move to keep increasing the scope of patent and copyright has slowed down. So, for example, we extended the copyright term by about twenty years from the life of the author plus fifty years to the life of the author plus seventy years with that Sonny Bono Copyright Extension Act in the think in the eighties or nineties. And I think it's not going to be extended again. In fact, there was some bizarre threat made against Disney, like we're not going to extend your copyright by twenty years if you or too woke or something like that, but I don't think that we're going to do it anyway. And I think we've reached a limit in how much we can twist the arms of other countries to crack down, especially with the COVID vaccine issue and this move right now to issue compulsory licenses and to not enforce patents on these pharmaceuticals as strongly to let other people make generic copies of the vaccine and things like that. So I think that the move to increase the scope and the penalties has slowed down and it won't get much worse Although there will be increasing lobbying to make it harder for people to have piracy on the internet, so there'll be you know the six strikes in your your outlaws and things like that. However, I do think that the rise of piracy has put a huge dent in the ability to enforce copyright. And my hope is that three D printing, when it matures, it'll take another couple generations maybe, but when it matures, it will start to dent patent law because. If you can download an encrypted file on the dark web or whatever, and you can use it in your 3D printer in your basement to print your own iPhone without anyone's permission, then Apple can't enforce their patents anymore. Things like that. So I do think that 3D printing... So basically, technology is making patent and copyright law unenforceable, which is which makes sense because they're totally unnatural and unjust laws. So it makes sense that it's hard to enforce them, just like it's hard to enforce the drug war, right? So... That's the only hope I think we have. I don't see any kind of strong movement to fight it. I've argued that we should try to persuade the constitutionalists among us and the free speech advocates to understand that copyright is a direct threat to free speech because free speech, the freedom of the press in the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law restricting freedom of the press. And yet copyright law does that because it says you can't print this book. You can't publish this book. So there's a direct, tension between those two laws. And I do think that the free speech people and the civil rights people and the constitutionalists ought to understand that they should take the side of the First Amendment instead of copyright. But I do think that's also a stretch, (laughs) unfortunately.
0: Well, I'm going to put at tomwoods.com slash 2145 a bunch of resources, certainly the Boldrin and Levine book Against Intellectual Monopoly. I'll also have your book on the subject. Maybe I'll find a, if if there's a link or two on some Other aspect of the question that we didn't get to where you're covering it, I'll put that up there.
1: One thing you should add, Tom, I just recently wrote like a 20-year retrospective on my original book. Oh, definitely then. And in that thing, I kind of went through about a dozen or two arguments that I plan to elaborate at more length on in a lengthier treatment down the road, but I gave lots of summaries and links to scattered discussions of those things. And that's on my uh, website, and I'll send you the link for that.
0: Okay, got it, got it, got it. All right, so all that will be up at tomwoods.com slash 2145. Well, I appreciate you taking all this time with me today. It had to be done. Now it's been done. I'm very happy with it. And given all the stuff that'll be up at tomwoods.com slash 2145, people can dig as deeply into this as they like, and they're gonna find quite a lot of food for thought. So thanks so much, Stefan. Thanks, Tom. All right, everybody, I wanna let you know that we, of course, had a long episode today. This is like two Tom Woods show episodes without a doubt. And I told you there'll be a couple of weeks here and there when I'm going to do just four rather than five. So I think this week, especially because I just have so many things going on at the moment. So this week, there'll probably be just two more episodes. One of them is going to be on the January 6th situation. We're going to be talking with Jason Rink, who knows an awful lot about that, has been doing a live stream of the hearings. So this is going to be great. I don't know what the other topic will be, but I'm sure equally great, no doubt. So that's the situation. Then a few more next week, and then we'll be more or less back to normal. I think I have a bit of an announcement to make about the direction of the show starting the middle of the summer, because if I get my way, I'm gonna be adding a feature to the show that I think is gonna make everybody happy. Two features, as a matter of fact. So stay tuned for that. Thanks so much for listening. And if you like and appreciate the Tom Wood Show, then warm my heart, by joining my private community, SupportingListeners.com. You can join the Tom Woods Show Elite there. It is a no censorship platform where I host it. I also give you a lot of goodies as members of my Supporting Listeners program. I even have parties at my own house for my supporters because I really, really do appreciate when you folks support me. So SupportingListeners.com, very countercultural thing to do is to support old Woods here. So Check that out and I'll see uh, y'all if not tomorrow, then the next day. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.